0: A college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello everyone and thank you for joining me for the 76th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is The Pale, Male, and Stale Guide to Championing Diversity at Work. I'm joined by Sue Unerman, along with Catherine Jacob and Mark Edwards. She is the author of Belonging, the Key to Transforming and Maintaining Diversity, Inclusion, and Equality at Work. The publisher is Bloomsbury Business. Sue is the Chief Transformation Officer at Mediacom, which is the largest media agency in the UK, with over 200 clients. Along with Catherine, she is also the co-author of The Glass Wall. Welcome to the show, Sue.
0: Hi, thank you for having
1: me. Absolutely. So please give us an overview of the book, if you don't mind. Don't mind at all.
0: Um, we wrote The Belonging Book because there is over six, eight, no, in dollars, eight billion dollars spent year every year on diversity, equity and inclusion. And yet change is really slow to come. And we thought about why that is. Um, our previous book, "The Glass Wall: Success Strategies for Women at Work and Businesses That Mean Business," was all about gender equality at work and pragmatic ways to overcome many of the barriers that women find in a workplace. It was essentially designed in the 19th century for men, and and actually quite a tiny proportion of alpha, kind of masculine, very patriarchal men. And and kind of the the, the work the workplace has pretty much stayed similar in structure despite the fact that so much has changed in our industry and and in the world. And so we thought first of all about how you break down those barriers for gender, and and then we thought a bit further than that because at many of the talks that we gave for the glass wall. We would get asked the question, "Where are all the men in the conversation?" And and part of our answer would be, "Well, they weren't invited in because this is a talk that's especially for women." And this this plays out with other forms of underrepresented groups in terms of senior management. That that there's an international day off for, for that group, or or or, or a week, or, or or Black History Month, or something. But the rest of the time, nothing changes, and that the straight white men who are still largely in power are not in those conversations so hence if you like the the title of this podcast which is that if if you are a straight white man in a position of power and you're feeling excluded from the diversity equity and inclusion conversation which many of them have told us that they are then this is a book about how you can champion diversity equity and inclusion at work and indeed boost your own career because you're helping to boost the careers of people who are different from you.
1: Well, when you have this phrase in the book, uh, where are all the men? I uh, gave a knowing smile because I remember speaking for a women's uh, event essentially at Johnson and Johnson. And that was exactly the question people raised. They really liked uh, the the conversation, the remarks, the slides and and research I could offer. But that was the question all of us in the audience had because there was precious few of them and on the other hand when i went to oxford in 1981 i asked the reverse question where are all the women because at that time i think there was at christ church for instance i believe six women in total i was uh,
0: um it's funny you should say that so i i went there in 79 and um i was the first woman but first first year of women there were nine women at my college out of i think about 150
1: Yeah. yeah no i was i was just stunned I um, mean, I really, I really was. So this is a topic that um, is near and dear to my heart. And you're right. A lot of money is spent and precious little advancement seems mm. to be taking place uh, beyond even the, the $6 billion or $8 billion being spent on the training. Uh, there are all sorts of stunning statistics on why there should be a compelling business argument mm. for for being more inclusive. Do you want to offer some of those and also how much people feel excluded And we'll just kind of frame the conversation that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, the statistics are now irrefutable. So I could quote a number of um, surveys, and I'm sure sure your your listeners don't want to hear a long list of figures. But according to McKinsey, best quartile companies for diversity deliver 35% better returns. According to Boston Consulting Group, companies with more diverse management deliver 19% um, better revenues. Um, according to um, uh, other surveys, there's just billions of profit that is delivered by the best quartile companies in terms of diversity and senior management. And yet, we still see a situation where according to um, the FTSE 100 stats in the UK, there's a new survey that's just come out that said that so there is a greater proportion of women on the, these are the the listed companies on the stock market in the UK. There's a greater proportion of women. There's there's um, 30% now, but most of those women are not, non-executive directors. So they don't actually work day-to-day for the company. There's still only uh, just 10, 11% of um, CEOs who are women. And the gender pay gap between men and women on those FTSE 100 boards is 40% which is shocking. And, of course, if you, if you go to um, the Fortune 500, again, you're looking at a handful of um, uh, women running those companies and um, a handful of um, uh, black men or women running those companies, um, which is also true, again, in the UK. And, you know, 2021, it just seems like we're stuck in some sort of model that was that was formed in the 19th century, and it's about time we updated it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love the comment in the book where you said, it's as if the predominant culture of business has remained analog in a digital world. Yeah. I mean, it is just incredibly backward. I remember coming into the workforce from academia in the mid-'80s and just being stunned by the lack of progress. I, one point, because I can type quickly i was mm. just to just to make you know rent while looking for a job i was being what we call in america still unfortunately a kelly girl mm. and i was going out as a temp mm. And i get to an office setting and all the men have glass enclosed offices and in the middle is the typing pool mm. And I said, is, I that, saw is that when
0: st- you join the ad- ad- advertising industry
1: <laughs> um, it, well, I was coming from academia and eventually yeah. I went back to academia for a bit and then I went to corporate America uh, v- vis-a-vis uh, uh, actually being in state government for a bit which, right. So I've had a lot of different exposures. That mm-hmm. was just uh, yeah, dealing in corporate life, but you know I, I went into that scene and I went I saw this in in movies from the 1950s, yeah you know, from Madison Avenue, etc, and never thought it'd still be around 30 years later. And now we're another 30 plus years beyond that. And, you know, it's certainly gotten better, but it hasn't remarkably gotten better in all sorts of ways. So one thing is, you know, it seems like these leaders will accept at least that they need innovation because with digitization, uh, with globalization, et cetera, they know technology, they know they need to move forward. But another statistic you have in the book is the companies that are more diverse in their senior management have 19% higher revenue due to innovation. So I don't see how they managed to miss the fact that it's really unlikely to get innovation in the ranks when you don't have innovation in terms of who's in the ranks and who's in the senior ranks. Mm-hmm. Have you brought that particular tension up to executives? How can they possibly defend themselves?
0: I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, uh, we have seen changes. So you and I probably joined the workforce about, about the same time. I, I know it wasn't advertising, obviously it was advertising for me. And again, that, we've seen changes in the sense that there's now some women who have um senior roles and there's less of an assumption that if you're uh wearing a skirt then you're going to be in the typing pool partly because there aren't any typing pools um so we've seen some change but we haven't seen enough change and i genuinely think that there are very few other things that you could point out those revenue increases for and not get actual change you know if i if i explain to somebody that if they um made some other change, they'd drive 35% better revenues, then they'd probably sort it out within months. Now that just hasn't happened for diversity um, and inclusion. And I think that's where the belonging point comes in. So this is something, this is this is what people say to me when when I was out interviewing for the book um, and, and my with my co-authors is that the CEO of a company who very often would be a straight white man in his um, uh, sort of 40s or, or 50s, you know, they're not hard to find to have a chat to, they'd say to me, look, diversity and inclusion is very important to me, but um, I, I, haven't got, I haven't got enough women on my board. I know I haven't got enough women in my, on my board, but I've got a really, really good woman who's in charge of my uh, HR policy um, and she's sorting out the pipeline. And I uh, and honestly, the pipeline wasn't really necessarily a problem anyway. Certainly in the UK, and I don't know if the same is true in the US um, or not, but certainly in the UK, um, women are generally getting better qualifications than um, uh, men when they come out of college or university. They yes. are getting those early roles. That's not the issue. The issue, which again is, is uh, documented in a McKenzie piece of research, is that there is a drop-off around late 20s. And I think it's two things. It's very often blamed on um, motherhood and maternity and taking time off. And there is a certain amount of truth in that. Um, But I think it's also at the point at which it stops your career progress, stops being about your capabilities to do the job, Because everybody by that point can pretty much do the job. That's taken as read. And your career progression becomes about how good you are at getting promoted. And I think that's a job not just for individuals, but for businesses. So obviously, Sheryl Sandberg famously wrote her book, Lean In, about individuals leaning into career progression. I think it's really important that businesses lean into career progression, because who do you want to promote? do you actually want to promote somebody who's good at getting promoted or do you really want to promote someone who's going to be brilliant at the job into which you will promote them? And that's where it seems as though there is a um, just a tendency for people to promote people that are like them as opposed to different from them. Yes. And... To help people along with all of those unofficial kind of sponsorship, um, the drinks after work. And my co author, Catherine, once did a um, speed mentoring um, event where she had a whole table of women that she was giving advice to. And she noticed that one of them wasn't, just wasn't joining in, was very kind of sitting back in her seat, looking a bit miserable. And she called her on it, you know, gently. She said, Are you okay? You know, w- w- what's going on here? and this woman said look i'm in a team where the all of the other people are men and they all play five a side football together every wednesday night she said what chance have i got to you know get that bit of extra help from my boss um and i think a lot of people are feeling excluded in that sense and if you're if you're the boss in that situation then you need to wake up and smell the coffee because if you end up just employing somebody who's good at managing up, who's brilliant at showing off, then you may well be missing out on the kind of diversity that delivers those 35% better returns in companies that do get it right.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's the it's the showing off and, and mm-hmm. how that becomes an instrument. I, I absolutely agree with you there. I think it's also true that you have, as you're alluding to, bosses who, strangely enough, they would never be tolerant. Tolerate this in other situations, but they're choosing their own comfort yeah. over what the company needs. In effect, so when you mention the, the the drinks and the sports, uh, there's another thing that comes up here in the book, and I think it really is central. It's the role of banter, and I want you to elucidate that a bit, and then I might have a comment or two myself.
0: Yeah, banter. I mean, certainly. Oh, I mean, look, I think often banter depends by industry. In my world, in the world of advertising and media, banter is very, very widespread. And, um, you know, my belief as, as we write in the book is one man's banter is another person's hideous, repetitive put down. Yes. Um, I want to be really clear. If you are more senior than the people you are bantering with, that is not banter, right? If they can't take you on on it, if they can't tell you that they find it, you know, offensive, because they're worried about their job, then that's not banter that's going on. I I actually um, once had a, a chat with uh, a, a, a CEO who said to me they'd they'd read something I'd said and they and they said, look, I just want to be clear with you, Sue. I checked for the girls that work for me, and they think my jokes are very funny. And I said, yeah. can we just <laughs> roll this back a second? You, the boss checked with the women not the girls who work for yes. you whose roles are dependent on your um approval whose pay rises are dependent on your endorsement whether they find you the boss's jokes funny and they went yeah should we just rethink that and i think um honestly there's lots of ways of dealing with banter which we which we deal with in the book but if you are ever if anyone ever says to you I was just being funny, don't you have a sense of humor? Then a great thing to say back is, I do have a sense of humor, actually. And um, I'd love to have a conversation with you about what my sense of humor is. That's not the conversation that we're having here. The conversation we're having here is something that you've said that I think has upset people.
1: Uh, No, in fact, that's very pointed for me because I remember being at a Christmas party and someone made a piece of banter, which was not Kind-hearted whatsoever on on the holiday, no less. And then when I didn't manage to laugh at what wasn't funny, they said, "Don't you have a sense of humor?" Yeah. yeah. And uh, so what you just said really rings strongly for me. And I remember being uh, joining a con- consulting firm at one point and went out, and it's all guys, including the the leader of the group, the president. And uh, the banter was very sexist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought about it a bit, and the next time I got time alone with the president, I said. You know we're supposed to be a cutting edge consulting firm mm. and I can't fail to notice but we don't have a single woman in a senior role in this company. Mm. And uh, fortunately he did put one not really what I wanted to in terms of you know truly a senior role but at least a promotion uh, I tried to say, bre- break break it a bit.
0: What did he say at the time when you when you said that to him because that's you know in some situations that can be regarded as quite confrontational.
1: Um, yes, I, I, I go probably a little bit as I did it cause I had been at the company less yes. than three weeks, but I could always <laughs> see the patterns Yeah. and I just, I just said, you know, we, we need to do this. This is the right thing to do. It's the right signal. Uh, if you want to keep growing the company, we need to be more inclusive. He really, he did do the, the step, but he didn't really take me on in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just kind of, he ducked his head a bit, didn't make eye contact mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of shook his head a little bit, you know, kind of a nod, kind of (laughs) not a nod, both at the same time. Uh, I I really was surprised when he did offer at least the somewhat token promotion. Uh, But at least it was something. And you made a difference,
0: right? You made a difference.
1: Yeah. Well, I was determined to Mm because this this whole thing about, you know, it is the sports and it is the drinks. I can remember Mm -hmm. and and I'm being confessional here, but uh, being out on an occasion where. Uh, We were speakers for a conference, and there was only one woman who was in the group, and someone started basically seemingly condoning date rape, and I I couldn't believe my Mm -hmm. ears. She was, you know, understandably, really uncomfortable, and Mm -hmm. I was uncomfortable, and I thought, how could I actually address this? And finally, I cited Abraham Lincoln, who said, if you want to know the character of a man's soul, give him power. And the guy apologized he actually apologized. I I never directly called him out with giving the yeah. quote. I just kind of said it out into the into the air across the table. But he he apologized and changed and the evening went along on another better route. So I'd like to think there's some opportunities for this, but he brings up another term in your book which I think is really important, which is the glass slipper problem. And I wanted you to mm. let us know what that involves because I think again it really gets to this Lack of comfort, and then some people choosing their comfort over what the company needs.
0: And this is about covering, covering who you really are. So, the yeah. reason it's called the glass slipper syndrome is that the true, the true, the original, the true story of Cinderella is a lot more bloodthirsty than the Disney version. And in the original um, Brothers Grimm version, the ugly sisters, when they're trying to squeeze their feet into um, Cinderella's glass slipper so that they can pretend that they her and marry the prince. They cut bits of their feet off and their toes off in order to um, fit into the slipper. And um, he knows it's not Cinderella's foot because of the blood that's gushing from it, which is a very kind of graphic idea. And the idea of this is all of the effort that people go to to cover who they really are at work. And this, again, isn't just about gender. In fact, that we know from a Deloitte study that over 40% of straight white men feel as though they have to cover at work and it's a huge huge effort so this is about going out of your way not to be authentic to fit in with your boss and there might be a whole area series of areas where where that's the case so in some cases um it could be people who are um Uh, Not the same sexuality as the rest of the people that they work with, and are just don't don't feel comfortable in expressing who they really are, but are just fitting in the whole time. So when it comes to questions about, you know, what they're doing at the weekends, or or, or they're feeling they feel awkward about about the answers because they haven't felt comfortable enough to to share their situation, it could be. to do with class it could be to do with money so um, uh, there is a big assumption for example that everybody's gonna in, in advertising that everybody's well, back when in the days when we could travel which hopefully will come again that you know people would go on skiing holidays and one organization that I spoke to she said that um, the uh, they decided to do fancy dress for their Christmas party and the invite had gone out to the whole company and it said fancy dress uh you know uh, for a ski slope for aspen and she said she was horrified by this because of course ski outfits are really expensive so unless you have one that you could wear for this kind of occasion um you certainly wouldn't go out and and buy one for a work fancy dress party and she said whoever had put together the invite had just automatically assumed that everybody went on a skiing holiday which of course
1: you're not Isn't the case. Yeah. No, well, first of all, to go back to the fairy tale. Yes, they don't call them the the Brothers Grimm (laughs) (laughs) for for no reason. Uh, It's it's a good fit. But yes, I mean, just like with innovation, and it's obviously if you have more innovation in how you hire and promote that seemingly that should go together, the idea that you're going to attract talent, that you're going to retain talent, that you're going to empower talent, and yet people are going around feeling uncomfortable in the workplace, they don't fit in. I think Just one of the I think yeah. one of
0: the worst <laughs> ideas one of the worst ideas that's been floating around in work is this idea of cultural fit. Because that's that's where that goes, right? Cultural culture fit means we're all the same sort of person. And I don't know if you remember um that movie with uh Vince I think is it Vince Vaughn the the intern that's about a big digital company and they take on a whole set of interns. And, you know, Vince Vaughn, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, he does get the job in the end, but he's the most, not the most obvious candidate. But it comes down to between him and another candidate and the uh, and the dis- deciding people, the deciding committee go, well, they're both good candidates. The other one's a bit stronger. But, you know, if we got stuck in an airport for 24 hours, who would we rather hang out with, this chap or, or the other chap? And they all go, oh, well, you know, it's got it's got to be the Vince Vaughn character. And, you know, the hero gets the job. But in truth, if you're deciding who to have in your team on the basis of who you feel comfortable be, sort of being stuck in an airport for 24 hours, you're not doing a good enough job. You, know, you need to hire for diversity. You need to hire for difference. And one of the things that I think has helped MediaCom, the company I work for, remain strong and, and grow so much in, in the years that I've been working there is that we've always had a lot of diversity in terms of senior management, not just in terms of types of people, but in terms of how we think and introverts and extroverts and, and, you know, different kinds of backgrounds. And sometimes people say to me, you know, Sue, what do you need to do to get on the, the, you know, the, the top management at uh, Mediacom? And I say, you know what, what we generally are looking for is someone who's going to add to our playlist, not just duplicate it. Um, then I used to say record collection, but now I say playlist. <laughs> People don't know what I mean when I say record collection. Sure. But you know no, what no. I mean. It's so, it's so, add, so add add something different that I'm going to love. Don't just play the same old
1: tunes. Well, that's interesting because I have. I guess I'm almost to the point of desperation, waiting for things to change and get better. And so I have resorted to things like, "Gee whiz, what happens if we said the the executive board or the executive committee had to." reflect the makeup, whether it's gender and other ways of diversity uh, of the consumer base uh, of the employee base do they have to have not just a meeting where they get the you know the input from the senior management if they're on the the board, but they actually meet with employees they meet with consumers they get the feel for what else is out there. So that kind of leads into a comment that came instead from someone I had on the show recently, uh, another woman and an entrepreneur and she said, I actually, she said, I'm to the point where I just think what we have to wait for is have them all swept away, that we have to get to the millennials stepping in who seem to embrace diversity at least better than what came before. And all we can do is, she said, I've witnessed and watched so many initiatives and very few of them have made a difference. And she said, I just think it needs to be a wholesale sweeping of the barn. Uh, Is is that where we're at? What, What do you think is the single best things that you've seen out there that seemingly do make a difference?
0: First of all, I, I I don't think waiting for another generation to come in is, is going to work. I mean, I've been in the workforce since the 1980s. When I joined the workforce, my first boss was a woman uh, and there was a woman prime minister at the time. Um, I thought, sure, every other company will soon have a woman as a boss. Why not? And, of course, that absolutely hasn't happened. Yeah. I think we've got to be – I don't think we can wait. I don't think – people who are different are going to come through I don't think that the generations that are coming through necessarily they may have different ideas about gender but the structure of the workplace is to help alpha patriarchal masculine traits succeed right so I think we need to rethink and I think many companies are rethinking and by the way isn't now a good time to do it as we move out i hope of the pandemic and into a position where we can reimagine the workforce our view is is that and of course this is what we put in the in the book belonging is that there are a number of practices that everybody at the workplace needs to adopt and then we will get change and that means being inclusive in meetings It means setting up your team so that everybody can succeed and understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses. But we need that kind of conscious, actionable change. And yes, we need need targets. Of course, we need targets. And I don't believe in quotas, but I do believe in targets, particularly for succession management, and they should be reflective. and, And certainly at Mediacom in the UK, we say not just of the UK overall, But of the city, we have five regional offices. We say they should be representative of the cities in which um, those offices are. So our London um, uh, diversity target is based on London, not on the UK overall as a whole. Those are super important, but it's how we all behave at work. And one of the biggest things that we say is that everybody needs to lead on this. Don't wait for the boss or the head of HR, however brilliant they are, or the company to change things you change things just like you have been down you know clearly throughout your career you need to we need to speak up for each other champion each other and really make sure that everybody belongs
1: you yeah, know yeah, the idea that we're going to shove it over to HR or, or close our eye I mean it's just not, it's just not going to work that way um you know, and and I love the idea that you're working in these various markets to make sure that the senior management, if I heard correctly, is trying to reflect what's actually out there in the mm. marketplace. I mean, that just seems to me so obvious that that yeah, is the way that's, to, to that's, growth.
0: That's not rocket science, right? That that's just yeah. respectful and appropriate.
1: Yeah, yeah, it seems a no-brainer, as they like to say. So, uh, Sue, I want to thank you so much for your time, uh, for being my guest, and for this really seminal, instrumental book that everybody, frankly, should be reading. Uh, This is episode number 76, The Topic, The Pale, Male, and Stale Guide to Championing Diversity at Work. My guest has been Sue Unerman. She is one of the three authors of Belonging, the Key to Transforming and Maintaining Diversity, Inclusion, and Equality at Work. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network, type in the show's name, and the other episodes will pop up. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I actually reached back to Mother Teresa who said, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.